for Remember, me. We're timing you. Oh, we're timing <laughs> me. Where, where's the timer? All right. I, I can be quick on this because it's, it is simple. But from my personal experience, the moments that stir this innate curiosity for me that are like this, this is just that first inkling of proof that makes me go, there has to be a God is staring at the stars at night. The vastness of the night sky. The beauty of the night sky. From when I was a kid, I, I remember laying in my grandfather's backyard with my dad, and it, it was like half the family, because there was a meteor shower. And so we were outside in the backyard watching for meteors. Mm-hmm. And I just, I remember that. And I remember the beauty of that night sky. The dance of the stars in the heavens. And it was, that can't be random. The randomness of it, to me, screams that it can't be random. It's a little contradictory, but just that innate fascination and curiosity towards how the night sky exists. How those stars got placed there. That was an argument for God to me where it was, there has to be something. Beauty. Welcome to the 42 Podcast, where we discuss life together, looking for answers to life, the universe, and, well, everything else. Here are your hosts, Rob and Lindsay. <laughs> Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, Rob. How are you? <laughs> you make the funniest faces when, when you miss that sync clap in one way. You're like, oh no! Oh no! What have I done? Yeah. So, you texted me, yeah. But you texted me this morning, and you're like, you okay? I was like, no, I feel like murdering something. Yeah, what's that about? No, I told you I'd tell you the story, but I that we could do it on mic, because it's kind of funny. But Do tell. So, Melinda has one of her last classes this morning, and she's finis- finishing up her master's degree. So <laughs> she had to get up early, and she had to head over to the school, and take the class i i had time to sleep in kids are at the grandparents the only thing semi awake is the dog and it's sleeping next to me so you know the dog and i are asleep semi asleep well i heard melinda open the door and leave i fell back into that like kind of deep but not too deep, like semi-sleepy morning. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You're not asleep asleep, but you're not awake awake, but you're deep asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so I felt uh-huh. like into that state. And then, you know, the house was quiet. I didn't hear the door open back up, but Melinda had came back in because she forgot something. Yeah. So, I, I'm in that semi-state of sleep, and she comes upstairs, opens the master bedroom, but she doesn't, like, just quietly open it. She just throws it open, or at least that's what it felt like. <laughs> it was probably not throwing it open, but 
it was at that <laughs> point though that you know the the oh crap something's wrong I'm about to die I must murder adrenaline rush of going from sleep to danger mode because you have no <laughs> idea what's going on and I'm just I, you know that I'm jittery and jumpy and gah, must kill yeah so yeah so that's why you were in tizzy yeah i was trying to figure out the coffee maker when you texted me because it was do i punch this thing or do i push a button <laughs> so i gave up on the coffee did the dog start did, oh my did dog the dog start dark why can't i say barking did the no. dog start <laughs> barking and go crazy and <laughs> no, he's the worst guard dog ever. Oh, uh, well, that's a half statement. He's not a bad guard dog, but nobody's going to run from a Chihuahua mix that's giant, fluffy, and cuddly as it yips at you. Right, but they—they're still so rattling when you're just—they're quiet, and all of a sudden they get alarmed about something, so they start barking and with ear-splitting volume. I hate that. Yeah. See, I I appreciate that because that's why I want to have a dog. I, I want a dog that is an alarm dog. I don't want an attack dog. You dinged. I don't like it. You don't like don't dinging? Like no dinging. Or you don't like dogs? I like dogs. I just want them to do what I want them to do. <laughs> <sighs> And yet I, you have I want cats. them to bark at the appropriate... Well, yeah, but I don't like her either. I don't like her. She's annoying. <laughs> she wakes up my kids. Um, leave my kids alone. <laughs> we'll be friends. I just don't like that high-pitched barking that small dogs tend to do. Uncontrolled barking all the time, every time somebody comes to the door, and then won't stop. They just seem to be ill-behaved, small dogs. But that's just my experience it's like people don't know how to discipline their dogs or something. I don't like it. Calvin, our dog, he's he's pretty good. He uh Melvin or Calvin? Kelvin, like John Kelvin. Right, right. Okay. That's right. Nice. <laughs> so, all right, all right. We adopted him 2 years ago and his original name was Snoopy. I'm I'm not a peanuts fan. I, I get it, but I'm I'm just I'm not a peanuts fan, so I didn't want to keep the name Snoopy for for Calvin. So we're talking about what we're gonna name him, and Ray, my son, came up with the name because he's a big Calvin and Hobbes fan. Yeah. Okay. All right. I I can take that because I I went on that because Calvin and Hobbes, the creator, named yep. Calvin for John Calvin. And Hobbes for Thomas Hobbes. Mm -hmm. So Ray gets a favorite cartoon character. I get John Calvin. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I sound fancy. <laughs> you sound... Actually, speaking of philosophy, you mentioned in uh, texting this week that you consider yourself... Or you said you'd like to consider yourself... Of a bit of a philosopher. I was wondering if you could expound on that. Sorry, I suddenly feel dubious. You're quoting me in text. Anyway, I sent you a video, and you said, I like to pretend I understand philosophy. <laughs> I 
<laughs> That's what you said. So, c- go on. What is your experience with philosophy? And 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 just want, I'm just curious. What makes you a philosopher? I never said I am a philosopher. I said I like to pretend. I know. Well, what do you mean? To what extent? I think the best extent in that is when you have. All right. So, let me phrase it this way. The technical production company of the 42 pod- podcast is called Bad Theology Productions. Mm-hmm. It's an email, and it's basically you and I, and if we ever expand anything out with the 42 or other podcast under that umbrella, that's how it forms up. That's what the company gets put as right now. We can argue about that later, but that's just kind of where that structure is. I chose bad theology as the name for that because it's that's what I feel like is a bad theologian it's not that I am it's not that I'm an evil theologian or bad at theology it's just when I engage with theology and the questions of and the study of I come at it with a different approach and curiosity and not feeling like yes I will ever get these solid answers I I find that to be a foolish thing. But that's exactly what philosophy is, is not is is admitting that you don't know and asking questions. And that's part of why. So might, and that's part of why. You're a bad theologian, but you're a good philosopher. <laughs> but that's part of why I kind of I'm like, well, yeah, I dabble with philosophy because that's inevitable when you're in theology. I um I made an argument in one of my classes. We had to write a paper and do this whole research project and write out a basis of our theological base, how we approach, how we interact, and how we engage in the word based off of a theologian who has had influence or we were familiar with and wanted to understand their theological premises and interaction better. So you have arguments like like John Kelvin, uh, Wesley, uh, you have, I'm blanking on everyone, MacArthur? T- Tom Aquinas. Yeah. Um, um, some, yeah, some of the early church fathers nuts. you have. Uh, so y- we had to write a paper on someone that was a theologian. Mm-hmm. Well, I camped out and said, okay, I want to write and do all of this and my basis on C.S. Lewis. Because I think C.S. Lewis is probably one of the best theologians of our age. But the problem, the problem, there we go, with Lewis is that he's not a theologian. And he even addresses this. He's a layman. Mm -hmm. His degree is in literature. His study was in literature. He found Christianity and approached Christianity from a literature perspective and story perspective over the foundations of Christological study for 1,900 years. I don't know what that means exactly. Study of Christ. The the foundations of the Oh, you said Christology, and I was like, rocks? No, that's gemology. Crystals? (laughs) Christology. I may be slurring it a bit but it's like crystallo- Christological yeah I think you're right it just hit me funny because I I don't know it's a weird. 
it was something that for me it was okay c.s lewis may not be a traditional theologian but he put out theology that you can't escape whether it's in narnia or in any of his other writings i mere christianity surprised by joy i the great divorce uh the screw tape letters these are some of my favorites because they lay out foundations for what belief is in a manner that's storytelling, but also effective. And Lewis was very heavily influenced by George MacDonald, who was a Scottish theologian. And I finally got a chance to read George MacDonald at the beginning of this year. And I, I get where Lewis is influenced. I see it by MacDonald. I see how... Lewis took a lot of what MacDonald was saying and put it into the stories he wrote, into the process and the thought process he had. Anyway, I, I'm saying all of this because that's kind of where I sit, where it's I, I'm not a traditional theologian, because I, I have the degrees to be a pastor, but I'm I'm not by ordination. I don't know, I exist in this weird gray space, and I've just come to embrace it and say, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a pastor, but I'm not a layman. I'm a bad theologian who badly engages with philosophy. And somewhere in the hmm. middle of all that, I find Christ. Interesting. And I feel like that's what <laughs> Lewis was, I feel like that's what... Where a good influence and foundation for where I'm at is, if that makes any sense. I understand your answer. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Um, interesting. And hey, so I didn't go on yes. for 20 minutes. Good job, because only that's 19. The next thing we're going to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> so last week we our our podcast was about the existence of God, and. It was interesting. <laughs> Actually, it was good. It, it was a good episode. Um, but we discussed before starting the show this morning that we are going to put you on a timer <laughs> now because I think at once, if not twice, you went like 20 minutes <laughs> trying to pastor me. <laughs> and it was very sweet. But sort of <laughs> maybe besides the point <laughs> being... The existence of God. So let's try to, in case people don't want to listen to last week's episode and are sort of jumping in now, because before we can move on with other um, philosophical, theological questions, more philosophical than theological, in my opinion. So what you said last week, and honestly, it took me a while to understand what you were saying. And I didn't really understand till like three quarters of the way through when, because we were sort of using different definitions of the word proof, which is my fault because I should have had us define things right away. What you were saying a couple times was that there is a certain degree of assurance or evidence slash proof Evidence isn't the right word, but proof that everybody needs to come to a conclusion about whether or not God exists, which is true. 
there are people that come to the conclusion that God exists for lots of different reasons, but a lot of, and I, I think a lot of people come to the conclusion God exists because their mommy told them that God exists. And that's kind of it. And that's sort of where it stays. I, I would argue you couldn't call that a proof. It's just sort of passed down knowledge. What is sufficient reasoning? How do we come to the conclusion that there is a God in a philosophical way, in a way that's not like personal to a person? Okay, so you are asking in the broadest sense, what is a pattern of thought and philosophy that can draw an individual or a group of individuals from does God exist to God exists? Yes. Okay. I would say that the simplest answer to that is innate curiosity within each of us. That's interesting because that is a good answer. That's what Descartes believed. That's exactly <laughs> what Descartes believed. So you're, you're practically, I'm reading about him right now. Isn't that so exciting? Interesting. Cause, and that's exactly the word he uses too, is innate. Innate knowledge. Meaning what exactly? All right, so I, I can only speak from my personal experience. Okay, I know you, okay, you already okay. hate me for it, but for Remember, me, we're timing you. Oh, we're timing <laughs> me. Where, where's the timer? All right, I I can be quick on this because it's it is simple. But from my personal experience, the moments that stir this innate curiosity for me, that are like this this is just that first inkling of proof that makes me go, there has to be a God, is staring at the stars at night. The vastness of the night sky. The beauty of the night sky. From when I was a kid, I, I remember laying in my grandfather's backyard with my dad, and it, it was like half the family, because there was a meteor shower. And so we were outside in the backyard watching for meteors. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember that. And I remember the beauty of that night sky. The dance of the stars in the heavens. And it was, that can't be random. The randomness of it, to me, screams that it can't be random. It's a little contradictory, but just that innate fascination and curiosity towards how the night sky exists, how those stars got placed there, that was an argument for God to me, where it was, there has to be something Beauty. that hung those stars in that spot. So even now, when I look at the night sky, when I watch the, the travel of the planets across the night sky, when I look at the, the zodiacs as they go in their cycles through our night sky, and when I look at the moon, I just see this testament to an existence of god okay <laughs> and you think that's innate to everyone to every human the beauty of creation being sort of an evidence or the intricacy and beauty of creation is evidence for anybody no that there is a god no because that's kind of what innate means right isn't that innate means like i innate curiosity so I gave what was my example. The night sky to me is where I found that curiosity that made me go, there has to be something bigger for someone else. But remember, we're talking generally. 
Right. We're not... T- so, generally, humans. Someone I know who is really smart man. Really smart. He's got a doctorate. He's a professor. For him, he found that innate curiosity, not in the night skies, but in cellular biology. And that's the moment that he, you know, there has to be a grand design. Uh, there are other people I know who, just in the beauty of the flowers at spring, in spring. I'm using the testament of creation as kind of that initiator, but there there can be more to it than just the beauty that is creation. It could be just a drive on a warm summer day that I have another term I use because I don't know how to phrase it, but in the poetic sense, I look at beautiful moments in my life. You've had like that perfect kind of warm summer day or perfect day that just was almost magical. Have you ever had that? Mm-hmm. To me, those moments are shadows of eternity. They're just glimmers of heaven here on earth. And so for some people, that innate curiosity is reflected in those shadows of eternity that break through. And it's a poetic way to say it and, and mm-hmm. consider it. But, I mean, that's that's what some people find, is that shadow. And that's where the curiosity comes in. That's where the testament to God comes in. And I think it's that that is within us that is the greatest testament to God. I, I will also say that that's also a scary thing that the church has experienced and wanted to suppress at times because it's dangerous. You know, borrowing from C.S. borrowing from C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. You know, Aslan is not a tame lion. He's he's dangerous. An encounter with Aslan is not always the safe moment that you expect it to be, but it's the moment you need. So I'm. I don't understand. You're you're connecting the two ideas. The church wants not. Uh, so I'm speaking historically of the broad church over two thousand years. The church wants to systemize and pattern things. This is how it works. This is why we think God exists, and this is why you should believe. Which is not a bad thing, but we can go into the state of systemizing and patterning that the moment you're outside of what is the standard system and pattern because you've experienced God because the night sky is beautiful and we can't control the night sky, then you're dangerous kind of thing. I have no idea. I don't understand that. Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! But people weren't burned at the stake because because the stars were beautiful and it's... No, but they were burned at the stake for things like finding medical advances that didn't match with what the church said, or beginning to understand some of the sciences, and this is where okay. that relationship has always been a little sketchy, because that curiosity drives us to spots right. that are right. understanding a little bit better about how creation works. We may not express that well, because the revelation of the cell and cellular biology. Yeah. Yep. Be- so. Because the church believed that, first off, the earth was the center of the universe because the Bible talks about the heavens, you know, and God is up in heaven. Therefore, there can't be anything up there except for God in heaven. So 
as far as the church was concerned, yeah, these new advances in science, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, um, seemed to contradict or oppose the church's understanding of the Bible. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. But for a lot of those people, it those scientists, it, it interestingly, it didn't make them disbelieve the Bible. Newton was still a Christian. Descartes was a Christian. Copernicus was a Christian. They were all still believers, and, and it, they didn't feel like it... Um, that's where that can get a little dubious between the relationship of the church and faith and science and understanding. But I think that curiosity that's within us is meant to be there because I, I don't think God created Adam and Eve and the whole of creation without intending us to understand it, live into it, and explore and question it. Yes. Can I? Can my I? I had a sort of idea earlier this week you know the verse in in matthew where jesus you know the people are bringing the children to jesus Mm. and the disciples are like ew no gross get them away and jesus like no let the children come to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these and i always thought oh no that means like innocence and wonder maybe but what if it's so children this is encouraging to me children are natural philosophers because a philosopher is always asking why how how come but why but why (laughs) and the curiosity of a child is limitless and i'm i'm hoping that's what it means in addition to other things i'm sure it's a very whatever profound statement that jesus made but it gives me hope that for me who i think that's where i live right there that even though i'm never satisfied with the answers i always there's always more to know and more to ask and more questions to ask and more questions to ask that's okay because jesus seemed to like that in children so what you're referencing is matthew 19 13 to 15 then the little children were brought to him for him to lay his hands on and pray but the disciples scolded those who brought them but jesus said let the little children come to me And do not try to stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he placed his hands on them and went on his way. Hmm. Cool, I like that. That's the the philosopher's verse right there. (laughs) There's, it took me years to figure this out. And this is the wisdom of a beautiful and wonderful woman. She unfortunately passed away a while ago. When I was a teenager, I was I was trying to grow up fast. I, I think that's the tension of being a teen. You want to be you want to be an adult, but you're still a kid. But you yeah, we can get into that, and I can go into further depth on that. That's a that's a career diatribe that I'm I'm not allowed to go on right now because I'll <laughs> run out of time. Good man. <laughs> but we could talk about it sometime. I got a lot to say on that. I'm sure you do. But anyway, the the wisdom of this woman who saw this and observed this in me, because the tension just, it made me an angry youth in a lot of ways. But She looked at me one day and I don't remember the exact words, but it was, grow up to be a kid. Hmm. Grow up to 
not to be this serious and, oh, life makes sense and I have all the answers, but grow up to be a kid. It's fun. Life is better that way. And you know what? It sure is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that is a failing of society, of church, of, 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 of. We, we want to be adults. And we forget to be kids. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to be a kid. And, childlike, and ask why. Right. And childlike faith isn't blind faith. It's going, why? Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, fine, there's eventually an end to the whys, but so what? When you get or to just the a end pat of that... A pat on the head and a like, we'll discuss this later. <laughs> we'll talk about this later. <laughs> so I've only got two, but I've tried to let those whys play out until that natural end where it's, okay, well, you're too young to understand it right now, but in premise... Exactly, yeah. Or... You know, well, yeah, here, here's the whole chain of things, and this is where it stops, because we don't know past this. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when it starts into the math questions, and they're like, why does 2 plus 2 equal 4? Because it does. And that's the end of my math ability. Because it's like, okay, yeah. once, we, once we get past 2 plus 2, we start throwing letters in there. That's not math. Duh. <laughs> uh. I'm an idiot with math. I kind of like it. I kind of like it. What, that I'm I'm an idiot with math? No, no. I I (laughs) like math. I wish I liked... Ah. I'm tempted. Like, next year, uh, I'm like 80% sure I'm homeschooling Toby again next year. I have good days and bad days. But next year, if we do homeschool, um, I'm tempted to get my own, like, algebra like Ugh. high school level algebra and take algebra because I kind of missed it in high school. I wasn't, I don't know. I wasn't ready or so, I don't know. And my homework skills weren't very good, but I, I want to do that because I just love the consistency of it. You know, I like that. So, but let's get back to, we can't want, be friends we, anymore. Yeah, well, we've established that. <laughs> I took my senior year of high school. This is how stupid I am, all right? I'm not stupid, stupid, but this is where I'm this at. This just isn't math. where your intelligence no, it, lies. It's That's not. All. But That's my all. senior year of high school, I was taking pre algebra one senior mm-hmm. year with freshmen. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was failing it. Oh, Robert, did you do the homework? Yes. Did you pay attention? As best as I could. The math teacher at the end of the year. And when I say I was failing it, like, I wasn't going to walk failing it. But the math teacher at the end of the year with all the extra tutoring he was giving me said, he's doing the work, it's just there's a gap somewhere where he can't make that final connection. And I I think it's actually with, the I have dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And one of the worst spots that I have my dyslexia is with numbers. Like, I can just, I can watch as the numbers move on the page without them ever moving. And it's just, no. So, I think that played into it. And I think it was just, you throw numbers or letters in and I start getting confused and dyslexia. But anyway, yes, let's move on. Let's move past. I'm an idiot. So, okay. I know we've been talking generally. Okay. But let's get a little specific 
just to, so I can understand, is is this argument from man's innate curiosity and slash your particular appreciation of the beauty of creation, is that enough for you to conclude that there is a God? No. So tell me, what can you, in, remember we're, t- we're timing you, so, but. <laughs> you want the one word you, answers, yeah. No, not the one word, but just like without going off on your, ra- on rabbit trails too much. What do, how do you, per- so what is it that cinches the deal for you? You, you actually, you mentioned last week the argument from morality. Yes. Okay. So you just sent me last week's episode this morning, so I haven't listened to it, and I don't remember everything perfectly, but I think I know what you're talking about. Like that good exists, that good and bad exists. Let's go. Let's go. Let's talk about that. Okay. All right. All right. So the simple answer to your question, okay? Yes. Is the reason that I believe the way I do is experiential. Okay. I have encountered a supernatural, and that's not the best way to phrase it, but it's kind of that entry into it, where I have encountered something that is supernatural, that goes beyond logic, with the okay. the question of, you know, with, within that innate curiosity that, okay, something bigger than bigger than anything I understand has to exist, out of that then I have experienced something supernatural. That's within the church, within the belief system, within what I believe. So so you mean whatever happened can definitely be attributed to a Judeo-Christian God who calls himself Yahweh, and you know for sure, based on your experience, it's that guy. And when I was in high school and and a young adult, I, I did some research and study and asked questions that were, it's okay, if... If I'm going to sit here and say that there is a God, you know, that, okay, that's level one, yay, there is a God, why is it this God? Why should I believe Mm. that it is this God? Why isn't it uh, just straight Judaism? Why, Why is Christianity the completion of Judaism? Why isn't it Islam? Why isn't it Buddhism? Why isn't it, uh, Taoism or, or, or Sikhisms, uh, you know, why isn't it Apollo pulling the sun across the sky in a flaming chariot? So Nope, but good try. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Well, come on. I, I'm Scottish, and there's some Viking in my line. So, you know, why isn't it Odin? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with Odin? Hmm? Thor. Exactly. So, so how did you come to the conclusion that, that it's Judeo, that it is Yahweh, Jesus? I asked questions. Of who? To who? Everybody. Anybody. Uh, so I people. read. Yeah. I read. Okay. I asked questions. Uh, and then I... It, I'm going to put it kind of comically because it's what it a little bit feels like. But then I had this religious experience that I would equate to, you know, you're walking along the street at night and you're just doing your thing. And uh, all of a sudden you're mugged. You know, you're not expecting to be mugged, but there you are. Yeah. And 
that's what I felt like was happening with my life, where it was, I was just walking along. I was, you know, okay, it's a broad street. I have questions. Hey, what's down that? Oh, ha. (laughs) You know, I encountered God in a way I didn't expect at a time in my life where I didn't realize how much I needed him. And (laughs) in a manner for me that was, I've only experienced it once. I I've never been like wow okay that's been a multiple you know time experience there's only there's this one point where it was that I, I I've had nudges I've had gut feels I've had other things that are yeah that that was God moving but I've only had this one very deeply yeah that's God moment ah <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's also scriptural in a lot of ways where and again everyone's different in their journey and in their path but there are moments where god just kind of peels that curtain back a little bit and says boo and everything in your life gets train wrecked but it's not a train wreck because it's oh wait now life actually makes sense i have direction i have purpose and there's movement in the right direction so i had that experiential moment that brought me from there is a God, I just don't know which one to, yeah, it's this guy, it's it, it's Jesus, it's God, it's Yahweh. Hmm. And then as I engaged more in scripture, it fit more with, okay, there's a God who made things for me to be curious about. He made this whole book, 66 books, several dozen authors, that weaves together a narrative over a thousand generations i don't know if it's a thousand generations but it it weaves together a narrative that makes sense it's not just a single author with a single point of authority it's here's here are the moments where you know god breaks through and there are these writings out of that Mm -hmm. and they weave into this bigger tapestry so it's not just it's not a single point author it's it's multiple It's multiple moments where God breaks through. And and that, to me, is also an argument for why the Bible has authority. Because it's not, not single point, follow my way of belief. It's multiple point, here's how God breaks through. Okay. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, except for the last part about the Bible. Okay. So, you're saying... Multiple point, like, so what, what, multiple points and God breaks through. If you read cover to cover the Bible, there is a cohesive narrative that is building and working from Genesis to Revelation. Now, there are all kinds of rabbit trails, things that break off. They don't feel like they make sense, but oh, wait, they come in, you know, five books later. So, it's a wonderfully complicated, beautiful love letter, I think, to humanity, all right? S- speaking kind of poetically there, but... I'm used to it. Sorry. <laughs> but that narrative weaves together this very cohesive message. It's not always what we expect, Again, it's it's not always how we want it to be or what we think it is, but it builds us to this point where Old Testament makes sense in light of New Testament revelation. 
I think the fullness of the New Testament will make sense in light of Christ's return. But the, the core of it is there in giving a message that is God's continued intervention in his creation. Hmm. And here are the highlights of it. Here are the moments where it broke through. Yeah, again, that for me, a big sticking point is it's you, you have this singular narrative, not singular narrative. You have this tapestry narrative, multiple authors, multiple books, and they're they're not really contradicting themselves. They they build on each other. They connect to each other, not always cohesively, but they do because sometimes like the book of Job, I love the book of Job. But the book of Job is kind of this outlying book. It, it doesn't fit into that main narrative arc mm-hmm. until you get into the New Testament and you look at it and go, oh, so some of this is God's work in our lives. And there's context we may not have for Job. Like, wh- why did God feel he would he would be tested? What is the greater point of Job's testing? And we argue over that still, but... I, I think it's in that that we then get value out of Job because it's we can look and we can say, okay, I, God may be testing, refining, or working in me in a way. So Job, as an outlier, even gives testament to God's work in our life in a very intimate way that we don't always understand. That there is this heavenly and this earthly narrative, and they they don't always seem to match. But God's working because the heavenly narrative always ends up drawing in the earthly narrative to his goals, his purpose. Hmm. That's how I view it. But you also have the the Torah, the first five books written by Moses, that is is the poetic foundations of creation. The lineages, the laws, and the foundations of Judaism that are then expounded upon and built on in the society, the structures, and the actions of God's work from the foundation of Judaism to the exilic periods to the moment of Christ revealing himself as Messiah and how Messiah goes back and fulfills all the laws, doesn't abolish the laws, but fulfills the law, fulfills everything in Old Testament and brings us into this new new age I don't like new age, but this new age that is Christ-centered of of God's work. <laughs> and again, the, the the fact that it's not a single author in you know a 10, 20, 30 year time period to me testifies to the authentic authenticity of Scripture, even in little arguments like you know is Isaiah. Uh, and it's a neat theological rabbit trail, but I don't think it undermines scripture. But is Isaiah written by two different Isaiahs? Huh. There's an argument that there's a change of voice in Isaiah, and I don't remember where it is off the top of my head, but it's right around the halfway mark. That that change of voice is actually a different Isaiah or someone in that school of prophet of Isaiah huh. writing again. And yeah, maybe. But we also see that there's a pass-off and a handoff in tradition from Elijah to Elisha, which, you know, in my early faith, that was the most confusing thing. How are there two different Elishas? Oh, it's Elijah and Elisha. Yeah. Okay. 
I see you processing things. <laughs> I just I see the gears really sure. spinning in your eyes. Well, I'm just not sure where to go from there exactly. Well, you didn't have the timer out. You let me run. I know. Well, <laughs> and here we are at 50 minutes. So we could go the how, well, we could continue to go on the how do we know the Bible is true route, if you want. You you tell me, because you're the one asking the questions, I, and I'm enjoying how that's working. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, where, where are you at? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? How about that? Well. Because you're, you're getting me to talk and interact a lot. It's just interesting. It's not satisfying. Your answers, like, don't satisfy, like, my... Innate curiosity. Well, the innate curiosity's okay. Okay. That's okay, um, because that is interesting. Why are we all innately curious about where we come from? That is an interesting point. How come we're not all just... How come we're not born happy to just be here and now? Where all, humans are very visionary, why is that? That's an, interest, that's an interesting point. But that, like you said, that's not enough. That's not enough of a reason for me. And experience... I, I get what we're saying. This is for you. Experience isn't okay for me because I don't trust reality. Mm. I don't trust... Like, how do I know... Like, how do you know you're not dreaming right now? What's the difference between what it is like in your dream versus what it is like awake, sometimes you don't know until you wake up. And so, therefore, I can't trust what I see, what I hear, what I smell. I can't trust any of that because you could be... I could wake up right now and it could be 4.30 this morning and just go again. (laughs) I always do these goofy little weird things, and I love doing this in seminary, where I would just kind of throw this curveball in a paper or a presentation. Like, I had to give this presentation, I'll give this example because it was fun and goofy, but talking about some things within the church, some issues that we see. So I gave the presentation, and I stood up, and for the first ten minutes, I talked about the Titanic. Titanic has nothing to do with the church and whole, but... I I lulled everyone into this sense of complacency and I did that left turn and and I used the Titanic and we, I I left turned it and I gave the example and everyone was like, Oh wow, that actually really hurts my head, but it makes sense. I did something like that with a paper arguing, arguing for what you were just talking about. How do I know that this is not a dream? How do I trust my experiential nature to be valid against is the Matrix real? That's the argument, old millennial argument that I've used. You know, is the Matrix real or is this real? Which is really a very, 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 very old argument. Very old. Right. Yes. But the thing that I have argued for with that or argued against with that, and I, I did a paper with this and I did it in that slapstick left turn style of, uh, you know, if, if, this is not the real world that I exist in right now, then I don't think I deserve to exist. Because if this is the dying fantasy or dream or whatever you would like to call it that I am creating as a narrative base for my life and my existence, 
why do I have these sucky moments in my narrative? Why do I have these horrible experiential moments that I have to reconcile my life with? Why am I not super rich living a fantasy world? You know what? And my argument was that if this is, if this is the best I can come up with to be my dream, my fantasy, then maybe I do deserve to die on said. And and I used that I was a it was a dying fantasy on a beach of evolutionary creation. To me, that's part of the reason why it's okay if existence isn't real. If if I am a figment of your imagination then why isn't your imagination more creative in crafting your narrative in a manner that is comforting instead of realistic? The problem with that is we can't control our dreams. Don't you have unpleasant dreams sometimes? Mm-hmm. Everybody has unpleasant dreams and nightmares, so why wouldn't if why wouldn't your body create uh, pleasant dreams that are restful and help you sleep at night, but sometimes people have terrible dreams that keep them from sleeping. So, Because the woven nature of what is this existence is too big for it to be a, a singular blip of, you know, a bad dream here and a bad dream there, while at the same time I'm living out this life. I love my wife and kids, but why, why am I living out this life in the middle class in the middle road why don't i have my wife and kids living out as you know like elon musk with bazillions of dollars sitting on top that's of assuming the world. you so have why... control over the dreamer that you're having but what if you didn't you could just as easily not which is true but i think that if it's if i'm crafting this narrative even subconsciously i think i'm going to give myself some kind of advantage how many dreams do you have where you have the advantage of a superpower, a flight? Uh, uh, How many more do you dreams? have one where somebody's chasing you and you can't move your legs? How many more do you have when, like, I have apocalypse dreams all the time. All the time I have apocalypse dreams. Why? Why is that? Burn down cities. My church is split in half and I'm exploring through the rubble. I'm totally symbolic in my dreams, by the way. Absolutely. But it's always chaos. It's always lava, and I can't find where I'm going, and I can't find somebody that's important to me. It's always stressful. So I can't... So that doesn't prove anything, I don't think. And I'm creative. I'm a writer. Right. But if you can have dreams like that, then why aren't you also having positive? That's exactly what I'm saying. Or, or... Why is it that your waking, not waking narrative, that is the existence that you and I sit in right now, why is it not more positive while the dream within a dream is negative? I don't understand what that has to do with it. I don't. That doesn't prove or disprove whether I am currently right now dreaming. It's a little bit it. Inception, but I, yeah, it's... It doesn't, to me, it doesn't... To me, I think my subconscious would give me more advantage, more money, more influence, more power than this long narrative of 30 plus years of of life in your dreams do you ever doubt your dreams in your dreams no uh colby colby ah sorry hi hi everybody's here so and you're going outside yeah 
You trimmed the beard! He's mad at you because you trimmed your beard. <laughs> Rob's crying, practically. <laughs> like, in, like, good crying or like I trauma? <laughs> no, he's good crying. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm mad at you. Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah, he's fun. <laughs> so there's that. Now my our philosophy discussion has been derailed because of my husband. Uh, oh. <laughs> Hmm. Now I'm never gonna be able to say that name again. Uh, um, I'll say it incorrectly. Descartes. That's how you spell it. <laughs> okay, let's just say it's not a new idea. It's a really old idea. And the philosopher aforementioned thought that, well, if the fact that he was doubting reality, for him, that meant it had to be real. Because if it wasn't real... He wouldn't be doubting it. That was his idea. Well, and everyone has a level of, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. That's that's his. That's him. Right. The aforesaid philosopher who shall never be named again. <laughs> you, you just can't interact with him. You, you can't interact with your husband when I'm around, I guess. Because... He gets really weird and fiery and like comp he gets weird with people. He, he, he like loves to get people riled up and make people laugh and make fun of people. And it's he's he's much more socially. I could see where he was putting you into setups, which is part of why I lost it, where yeah, he's he would that. set you up and you would just walk you. You would just walk into it. And it was just, mm -hmm. oh, uh, let me mm -hmm. stop now. Mm -hmm. Nope. I yep, he went there. Yeah. And then you just, you kept walking right into it. Yeah. It's because I just forget he's like that sometimes. <laughs> he's a guy. And he's hilarious. Like that. Yes, he's a guy. He is a guy. And he's around guys most of the day, so. Yeah. I get it. Um, <laughs> but going back to Descartes, everyone has a level of my existence is real. And, and. You may not have found it yet, but to me, that my existence is real is is that if I was going to put together a fantasy or a dreamlike state that was my existence, I really think I would have given myself a lot more advantages yeah. than being in the lower middle class of life. I think what you're talking about, in a way, is a little more like the idea of I... um. How do we know we're not living in a re virtual reality? What's another word for virtual reality? Uh, simulation. A simulation. How do we know we're not living in a simulation? You know, like, so I think that's kind of the where you're going, I think, or, or more your brand of answer is assuming right. that you have control. But in a dream, you don't usually, unless you're a super talented lucid dreamer, which I'm not. I've had Can lucid I tell you, dreams. actually, Go ahead. personal, ex okay, so you, sorry, 
you've had lucid dreams, you can control your dreams? Not always. I'm just, that was a side, an aside comment. So tell me what you were going to say. Well, this is personal for me because I sleepwalk. I have believed with 100% certainty that a ch- that a, a bureau was crushing a child. And so I had to try to lift the bureau off the child. And my heart is racing. It's scary. And then I, as I wake up, the child disappears because they're not there. So I've had many dreams that I have... I cannot express to you how much this is just I just believed it was true and then as I woke up I realized it wasn't true or somebody would tell me I'm sleepwalking and I'd get angry because like no I'm not I'm not sleeping so this 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 uh idea is a I get it I get this insecurity and that coupled with religious experiences I think I may or may not have had and not believing them. Well, yeah, why should I believe them? Because I don't even know the difference between waking and sleeping. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's scary. That's where crazy town lives. And, and actually, that's another f- I'm afraid of all. I'm afraid to death of Alzheimer's and dementia because because of this. It's like, how do we know what's real? How do we know it's not real? So and th- that's why, again, that's why we come back to logic. My safe space. Logic is the campfire at which I gather myself and roast marshmallows because it's warm, it's safe, it's sure. You stick your finger in it and it burns the frick frack out of you. I like that. I like the heat of the fire of logic. I So you posted this on social media last night and I finished the <laughs> quote for you because I think you didn't finish the, the sentence there. Yeah, I don't get what you were saying. So you said logic is the warm, fuzzy blanket that comforts me. And then I posted on your social media and said, filled with danger kittens. (laughs) Yeah, so meaning the logic that I used, that you could use to prove God exists, can also try to disprove God exists. So a, a logical... Like, for instance, actually, the one, the, the logical tool that I've used that I'm, that I'm really happy with right now is um, Aristotle's causation theory. I, I love it. It's really good. I'm, I've been listening. I've been, like, looking at it over and over again. However, if you go online, you can find tons of videos disproving it. So, so is that what you mean by danger kittens? <laughs> not entirely, but it's simply this. Logic is a wonderful and useful tool, but pure, absolute logic is terrifying to humanity. It is. What do you, what do you mean? Pure, absolute logic, unadulterated by who we are, the emotions, the interaction, the conscience of who we are, Okay. will draw us to horrifying conclusions. Okay, explain. What are you talking? What do you mean? Marvel's Avenger, Thanos. There's a galactic crisis that there are not enough supplies. The pure logic of Thanos was to solve galactic crisis and global crises of not Mm -hmm. enough supplies. You eliminate half of the consumers, the creatures that are conscience and using supplies and materials. 
So Thanos's logic drew him to the to the logical place of eliminating half of the population of the whole galaxy solves global catastrophes, war. But logic could have talked him out of it. Right. But that's where so? pure logic is terrifying because it's without conscience. Yeah, you know what? That does make sense. You eliminate half of the people. Yeah. Then you solve the problem. Yeah, but logic can get you out of it too. Logic, if some, if you're gonna just have a logical debate, then logic can say, yeah, but people are created in the image of God, so you can't kill them. Ah, Bingo. but you've you've used an illogical argument to logically argue against it. No, I haven't. No, yes, I have, have not. Yes, you have. No. Yes. How? You have brought in God, which is logic, but is not logic. First, you have to establish there is a God, true, but that's how you do it. First, you establish there is a God. Then you conclude that man is created in the image of God. Bam. But you have, yes, you have to start with nothing. You have to start with no God. Then you establish there is a God. Then you can establish that man is created in the image of God. But that's how logic works. But pure logic, will, pure logic will always find a way to disprove God because it's not something I can touch and feel. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Because, again, mm -mm. that premise of logic is it has to be something tangible that I can that's hold up and say it exists. I don't, th I don't think that's what logic is. That's not what logic I, is. I, I said pure logic. How do you know? Prove it. How do I know what? How do you know that pu pure logic says if it's not tangible, it doesn't exist? Because that's a... That's gotta... That, not gotta. That is part of the argument of what existence is. It has to be a tangible. Think if it's not no. tangible, it does not exist. Just define tangible. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can lick it and taste it. I can hear. I can smell. Tangible is the senses. Okay, then. No, I, I, well, gravity you can't lick. No, but I can observe the effect of gravity. How do you know you can't observe the effect of there being a god? That's what I'm saying. You're, I'm just saying I disagree. I, I think you can, obviously, because... If you can establish that there had to be a first cause, that's how you establish there's a God. First cause, there is a God. Therefore, that's all I'm saying. You can't love your way out of Thanos exploding the world. I didn't say love your way out of that. <laughs> well, I'm saying you can logic your way out of Thanos explain, exploding the world. Fine, don't use God existing. Fine, don't use that. But there's other arguments that you can use to convince Thanos it's not a good idea to, to explode the world logic. It... Logic isn't bad. Logic is just a loaded gun. There it is. And logic is filled with danger kitten. There's good and there's bad of logic. No. But there's always going to be a premise that logic has to come back to a tangible. If it's not tangible, it's not logic. I didn't say it's a logical argument Prove that way. That. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think that's necessarily true. you got to prove that to me because... That's where people like to go with it. If it's not tangible, it's not logical. I don't know if that's a, a real thing. How do I know that's actually a definition? I'm not sure that's a definition of logic. Anyway, your point was logic is ultimately evil because I didn't pure say logic evil. is you said pure pure logic is bad and I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure. I don't think that's the case. I don't know if I said bad, but it, my point was pure logic has traps in it. It has areas that are going to feel like they're logical, but they're illogical in a way that is removing a conscience or the emotion of the individual or the, the group or the humanity. Logic. So logic can be used inappropriately to come to wrong conclusions. 
just as, is that your point? Yeah, part of it. And just as uh, as faith can be used to come to or love. wrong, yes. So any tool within the toolbox of our existence, faith, hope, love, uh, all of these things singular singularly can be misused in a way that is detrimental rather than useful rather than helpful rather than good i think i thought what you were saying was you can't only use logic but i disagree about that that's what i disagree with that you can't you can't only use logic i'm making the argument that you can't use singular okay. logic there are other aspects of who we are as people i have a love of my family so that figures into how my logic plays out. I have a love and a faith in, in Christ, in God, in the church, in scripture. So that figures into how my logic plays out. So there are these things on the outside and inside of our logical premises that are backgrounds to how we think, how we consider, and a holistic view of who we are. Okay. So pure logic by itself, without those things, plays out in horrifying ways. And I think to just yeah. say logic is the answer is to ignore the other tools. That That's more the premise I'm getting at. Okay. Logic has a spot and a place, but pure logic is filled with danger floofs. Danger floof. I think it's logical if you can break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller parts. But if you can't do that, then I guess it's not logical. It's not a, lo it's not a thing that can be ascertained with logic. Like love. If you, if you follow out love, okay, you have... I, I have two kids, you have four, okay? In what way does it logically make sense to love a child? When you say that, it's like you're, you're so interesting. Um, you're asking for a reason for why we love children. Why, why do you as a mother, why do I as a father, why do you love your kids, why do I love my kids? And the only are, pure... mine. The only pure logic answer is... I love my kids because I have propagated my genetic line. Pure logic, okay? That's the only reason. Okay, great. I have brought them into the world. My genetic line continues on for another generation. But that's where it also fails because it's, well, no. My kid is a beautiful and wonderful addition to the creativity of this world. They are a unique thinking individual that will bring better or worse into this world. And I want to raise them to bring better and not be a serial killer. But is that a failure of logic, then? It's not a failure of logic. It just goes past logic. So what you're saying actually is material. Like, there's no material. What you're saying isn't material. What you're saying is an idea, which is separate from material. So it's kind of like, because lo logic d does deal with material things, right? So... What you're talking about is a material thing, um, an immaterial thing, an idea, the ideal of love. Right. Okay, yes. Yeah, because... So, it's like... My child was brought into this world through a beautiful act of creation, through a beautiful process of birth, which is terrifying in its way, but beautiful. They are being raised as best as I can to live into a world and bring good into this world as as best as I can, as best as I can raise them to do that. And all of these things, logically, you know, the, the okay, I've propagated my genetic line, but there's more to my kid being in this world. From the act of creation to what I'm trying to do and instill and 
enable them to do in this world. That love that is the basis for that only goes, or sorry, the, the logic that is the basis of that. The love goes past the logic because it's also this. If my child is in danger, okay, great start to this morning. I told the funny, goofy story of how I woke up and, you know, that adrenaline shot, that, okay, kill mode because there's danger. I, I have, we, we've gamed this out as a family where it's okay, you know, if there is danger, here's kind of how that plays out. And the first person between the danger, my wife, and the kids is me, which is why I had that adrenaline shot this morning, because I didn't connect. I thought it was danger. I reacted in that mode. Logic doesn't get me to that point. Love does. I guess, so that's the question. Where does logic and ideas, where do logic and ideas overlap? Do they overlap? Can you explain... Wow. My brain's exploding. That's an interesting question. Can you quantify... How could you quantify an idea? Interesting. Okay. Interesting. I I don't know where you are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I see, like, I, I see the lights in your eyes. I see the fireworks. There's lots of things going on in your head. I'm curious, but we're also at an hour and 20. All right. I mean, there's some stuff we're going to edit out of this, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we've got a good spot to start with for next week. Yeah. You know, yeah. write your thoughts down, figure it out. Okay. Let me know. I, I'm enjoying this train of conversation we're on. Me too. Because it's, it's too. fun. Yeah, we did good. This was a good one. And I didn't preach for 25 minutes. No, no, you, you did good. <laughs> you limited yourself. <laughs> Yay. But I know you preached because you care about me, and I I cried a little last episode. (laughs) But that's okay, I cried this one. (laughs) Yes, you did! Yeah. But not because of any preaching. Yeah. Alright. Well, with that, you have a good week. Thanks to our listeners for putting up with us for another hour and 20 minutes. Enjoy your week, and by the way, if anyone's still listening, the book we are all supposed to be reading-ish is um, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, so I think we're going to try to do that maybe the second or third week of um, April? Second week? Third week? So we'll we'll nail that down, but I kind of want to have it done earlier in April because I have two book clubs, and they having to read two books, having to read two books at the same time. It's hard. So, um, okay. Bye. All right. Hey, thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the 42 podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe. And if you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter to add your voice to the conversation. Thank you.